1: The arithmetic is grim. Even the most optimistic modelling now expects the COVID-19 pandemic to kill twice as many Americans as the Vietnam War. But that estimate of 100 to 250,000 deaths is the same as the number of Americans thought to die each year from what are called deaths of despair – suicide, drugs and alcohol. And these are tolerated without massive government intervention. It may seem inconceivable now, but at least while we wait for a vaccine, ending the lockdown will require Americans to reach an accommodation with a grim statistic like this. Could that happen? With 213 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how long could the lockdown last? President Trump changed tone and changed course this week as American death and infection numbers passed China's official totals. He extended federal guidelines on social distancing until the end of the month. New York is the centre of the pandemic, but large parts of the US remain unaffected for now. Public opinion supports strict measures to contain the virus, but for how long? In this episode, we'll ask how political the lockdown might get. We'll hear from New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, look into the models behind the lockdown, and trace history's most notorious asymptomatic carrier. As ever, I'm joined by Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and by John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. John, how are you doing? I mean, you are America's most peripatetic reporter. You're on a plane most weeks. Um, you're hardly ever at home. How are you finding being in one place for such a long time? And how are you staying abreast of what's going on in America whilst being stuck on your couch
2: well, generally what I do is I get up at around uh, five and read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And then I refresh Twitter for the next 19 hours until I pass out from anxiety. So just like everyone else, I guess.
1: That sounds like a very sound method. <laughs> Charlotte, how are you doing? How's, how's life in Manhattan at the center of things?
0: In some ways, it's normal. The grocery stores are open. You see a few people walking down the street. And there have been some nice pieces of news The head of the Four Seasons Hotel, which is a luxury hotel, said that he'd offer rooms to medical staff so they don't have to commute as far to work to Manhattan's hospitals. But overall, the feeling is pretty grim. Uh, There are refrigerated trucks outside of Bellevue, which is a big public hospital. Those trucks are acting as makeshift morgues. So this feels urgent and increasingly worrisome.
1: Well, I think for all of us living through this crisis, it's been a strange combination of horror movie images and a sort of mind-bending statistics refresher. I've been trying to understand the epidemiological models behind the lockdown. Our healthcare correspondent, Slavea Chankova has been writing about them for this week's Economist. She talked me through three different types of model, starting with the most common one.
3: It divides people into four categories. So they're either susceptible to a disease... They're exposed, they're infectious, or they're recovered, at which point they're no longer susceptible, they're immune for a certain period of time. The problem is that when you have a new disease, you don't know how these four categories are linked. So, what is the rate of transmission? How long are people infectious for? How long it takes them to recover? And right now, the models that are being used are constantly being tweaked as new data come in. So that's partly why we are seeing some of those projections or predictions really change quite often.
1: And the second type of model you write about is the type where you look back at what's really happened in terms of cases and fatalities over the past week or past two weeks and make some educated assumptions about where the curve is going in the coming week or coming fortnight.
3: Yes, that's right. You basically extend the trend that you're already seeing and you make some fancy adjustments. You adjust that forecast trajectory using all sorts of additional information that you know affects the epidemic.
1: And then the third type you mention is when you ask a bunch of experts and essentially average their predictions. And surprisingly, there's some evidence that that method is the most, or can be at least, the most reliable of all.
3: Yeah, that certainly has been true for the seasonal flu epidemics, for example. Researchers in America did an exercise where for two seasons, they asked a bunch of experts weekly about what they thought was going to happen in the next week, when they thought the epidemic might peak, what would be you know, the number of cases and so on. They found that on average, those experts, what they told them, was consistently better than the best predictive models that were used uh, in those seasons. And and those were, you know, models that had won competitions.
1: And looking at past performance, past epidemics, how good are epidemiologists at modelling what happens? I mean, is this a discipline that's like economics, where forecasters have a decent record when they're looking a quarter or two out, but really once they get beyond that, their ability to predict things with any accuracy tends to collapse. What's the record of epidemiology?
3: So what we know is that models are reasonably good in the short term. We are talking about two, three weeks, maybe. But beyond that, they really haven't been great in charting the trajectory that an epidemic might take. Even with the seasonal flu, where we know very well what the different parameters are, such as how easily it transmits, what's the mode of transmission, and so on. Even with the flu, the accuracy of the models in predicting the trajectory of the epidemic is very good only in the short term. And right now, we are dealing with a brand new virus, which we are still learning about, so it becomes even more difficult.
1: And so to take the model that the White House has been using which predicts 100,000 to 200,000 deaths if social distancing is maintained and if people are disciplined about the lockdown and something closer to a million if that's not the case. You'd say that that model might be reliable for predicting what happens in the next couple of weeks but beyond that it gets really tricky and so being able to put a date on when America reopens which people really want to do at this point is not something you can do with models. Is that is that fair?
3: I think that's fair to say. We know roughly how things might look like next week or in two weeks, so uh, in the short term, just by tracking the number of new infections and uh, the number of people in hospitals. That gives us a pretty good idea. But at this point, we just don't have enough evidence of how this virus behaves how these measures affect the trajectory of the epidemic, and how people might change behavior in ways that we are not even able to see right now. So all these things enter into the models and they're hugely uncertain. And as a result, the predictions are as well.
1: Charlotte, the one question that everyone wants the answer to is, A, when will this thing peak and then start to decline in New York? And B, when can America go back to something like normal? How did what Slavia had to say about the models change the way you think about those questions?
0: Well, I think it's become increasingly obvious in recent weeks, and for some of the reasons that Slavia outlined, that it's not going to be a magic date, and that The resumption of activity won't look like a V. I was on a call yesterday with Larry Summers, who was Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton and a top economic advisor for Barack Obama, and he was discussing what shape the recovery might take, whether it might be V-shaped or it might be a Nike swoosh. I think in reality, it will probably be something quite bumpy. In addition to it being
2: bumpy sort of chronologically, I expect it will also be quite bumpy geographically. I would think that the sort of varying responses that different governors have taken with strictures of shutdown orders here and not there and the fact that the virus first appeared in in dense cities means that you may see some resumption of activity in places that look quite grim now sooner than you'll see resumption of activity in rural areas, by which I mean, you know, the virus is peaking now in New York, Atlanta, Detroit, Boston. By June or July, I expect it will be ravaging rural areas, places with fewer hospital facilities and where healthcare is just much more patchy. So I expect you may see by the end of the summer, perhaps, activities returning somewhat to normal in big cities, whereas in more rural areas, activities may be suppressed for longer.
1: So Charlotte, we saw this big change in how Donald Trump is talking about the epidemic this week. Was that caused by a shift in polling, or different results from the epidemiological model, or rather listening to a different set of experts, or or some mixture of the two?
0: Well, Trump's own pollsters found that a majority of Americans preferred a national shutdown, requiring everybody other than the people who are absolutely essential to stay at home. And so this was an instance in which the polling aligned with the epidemiology and the good news is that he was responsive to that. The bad news is that in the future, public opinion may not be aligned with epidemiology as people start to feel the strain of remaining under quarantine.
2: On Thursday morning, the unemployment numbers came out and they were just stunning. There were 6.6 million new claims, which I believe doubled last week's number, which was itself a record. So people are going to start feeling some economic pain quite soon if they're not feeling it already. There was a paper that came out this week from Emil Vermer at MIT that looked at trade-offs between economic stability and public health interventions during the 1918-1919 flu pandemic. And what they found was that the places that instituted the strictest non-pharmaceutical interventions, in their words, so social distancing, things like that, that kept things shut the longest and saw the fewest deaths, had the sharpest rebound in economic activity once things got back to normal. So I think that there has to be a broader conversation about whether this trade-off really does exist or whether the choice is a false choice. By the way, one of the bleaker things from that paper is there was evidence that economic activity was muted for a long time. So manufacturing activity really didn't get back to normal until 1923, which is four years after the epidemic waned.
0: I do think, John, that you're correct, that it is a false choice to say, you know, let's open the economy now and save American jobs or let's fight this pandemic, because clearly people need to stay home in order to save lives nonetheless as our leader this week points out there are a series of trades that will be need to be made in the coming weeks months and years those include medical trade-offs doctors are going to be in the position of having to decide who gets a ventilator if there's someone who's old and infirm do they deserve to get a ventilator over one patient who's younger and has a better chance of recovery. Those are really, really difficult choices. The choices will also be between different states and between different cities for how quickly they view it as in their economic interest and in the name of public health to keep the very strict restrictions in place. So I agree with you that absolutely it is a false choice, particularly in the next month and two months. But in the months after that, you'll begin to see different politicians in different parts of the country arguing for looser restrictions for a variety of reasons, arguing over how best to provide medical care to people with COVID, as well as distribute scarce health resources to people without COVID. There are going to be a series of quite difficult trades that the country will need to assess head on.
1: One of the things just on that trade-off between economics and public health, which intrigued me, which is in this week's Economist in the briefing, is that actually there's a slightly inverse relationship between economic growth and life expectancy, it seems. So during a downturn, you do get an uptick in suicides, but that seems to be more than offset by the decline in people doing things that are otherwise bad for their health and actually during a time when the economy is growing faster you seem to get sort of more accidents and for some reason more other things that curtail lives more suddenly so there's a very odd pattern that you perhaps wouldn't expect to see okay thank you both another thing Slave flagged up to me when we were talking earlier is how little we know about asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19 We'll hear more about history's most famous asymptomatic carrier in a moment. But first, a reminder, you can read all our COVID-19 coverage by heading to economist.com coronavirus. Subscribe if you haven't already. economist.com pod2020 is the place to go to receive 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. There's a link in the show notes for this episode. Americans living under lockdown, some unable to leave their homes at all, may be going a little stir-crazy. But spare a thought for Mary Mallon, a.k.a. Typhoid Mary. She spent a quarter of a century in forced isolation. Mallon emigrated from Ireland and came to New York, where she worked as a cook for a number of wealthy families. Several of them suffered from outbreaks of typhoid fever which seemed odd as it was mainly a disease that afflicted the lower classes. One of the victims, concerned that the outbreak might damage the rental value of his summer house, hired a sleuth to track down the source of the outbreak. An early experiment in contact tracing led to Mary and, possibly, to the medium through which the disease might have spread. Mary's peach ice cream, made with fruit she had touched without washing her hands. Like some other spreaders of typhoid, and like many of those who have spread COVID-19, Mary was asymptomatic. Once identified, she was forcibly isolated on North Brother Island, next to Rikers, site of New York's infamous prison. North Brother still has a ruined hospital, but the island is now a bird sanctuary. After three years and a promise not to work as a cook again, Mary was let out. But she broke her vow and got back into the kitchen, causing another outbreak of typhoid, whereupon she was re-quarantined on North Brother Island with, apparently, only a fox terrier for company. She remained there for the next 23 years, with no WhatsApp, FaceTime, Zoom or podcasts for company. ...before dying in 1938. History doesn't record whether she ever learned to wash her hands... ...but her story is a reminder that when disease strikes... ...civil liberties are early casualties. Charlotte, does Mary Mallon's ordeal on North Brother Island... ...make you feel a little better about your own confinement (laughs) in your apartment?
0: Yes, it does. There's obviously no comparison between my situation and hers. I do think this question of entitlement, though, Americans in modern society feel entitled to a lot of things, you know, a functional Internet, being able to watch their favorite shows, etc. But more substantively... Americans also have an entitlement that's cultural, that includes being able to own a gun. It includes being able to get whatever medicine they want. I mean, in Britain, there's a clear way of valuing life, and that informs what drugs the country is and isn't willing to pay for. In America, we call that rationing, which is sort of political suicide for any politician who would suggest it. Americans don't like the idea of the government limiting their access to stuff. They don't like the idea of government intrusion generally. And as I've been in my apartment stuck, I've been thinking about this and how, with COVID, this very particular American culture runs into a problem in that eventually people are going to get sick of government limiting their movement, their life, their economic prospects. But also, Americans like the idea of being able to get access to whatever healthcare they want, they like being able to choose healthcare and services. And the truth is, that if the government lifts a limit on movement, there'll be a surge in cases. And guess what? Then you're going to get rationed care. For instance, there won't be enough ventilators. So I think this particular American culture of entitlement and freedom runs into a big problem with this pandemic.
1: John, I've been thinking about the politics of contact tracing and civil liberties as well. And one thought I had, I'd be interested to know if you think it's right or if it's rubbish, is if you had a Democratic president now, actually Republicans... um, would be much more reluctant to give up their data to the federal government about you know, their movements and who they've been seeing and, and so forth, because there is this strong strain of resistance to giving the federal government information on the right. Whereas with the Republican president, with President Donald Trump in charge, actually the people who might be most resistant to giving up that information will be more trusting of the federal government. And Democrats in cities tend to not worry so much about giving their information to the federal government anyway. So actually, strangely, even though Donald Trump's performance on COVID-19 has hitherto been pretty awful, I'd suggest, looking out of the longer term, the fact that America currently has a Republican president um, might not be such a bad thing.
2: Yes, I think that's broadly true. I think the fact that Democrats are generally more trusting of the government means that you don't have the sort of resistance that you would have had had Barack Obama been in office you don't have the popular resistance you would have had. And you also have a Congress that's much more willing to vote for the aid packages that are necessary to backstop the economy. So I think in that sense, although Donald Trump's performance has, as you said, been been just terrible, that is a silver lining to a Republican being
1: in office. Charlotte, you made the point about Americans being freedom-loving people. And also, one of the things that strikes me compared with many Western European societies is that Americans have an appetite for risk, and you see this in all sorts of areas. And one of the downsides of that is that America as a whole seems to tolerate a higher level of, say, deaths from, well, guns being the obvious one, but even things like road deaths. The level of road deaths in America is far higher than it is in Western Europe, I wonder when it comes to COVID-19 and when it comes to the opening up, whether America will be more tolerant of a kind of higher risk of death than Western European societies have been. Or whether the, because this is an epidemic, the rules are somehow different and Americans as a whole will be as risk averse, as protective of each individual life as Western European societies tend to be.
0: That's a fascinating question and one that I don't know the answer to and have been debating myself. I think on the one hand, the degree to which this has to date been largely seen as an urban problem makes it easy for a rural voter or a state with a more distributed population, makes it easier for them to discount the severity of the pandemic. I do think that unlike, say, climate change, which obviously does have real impacts now, but is harder to feel as an individual on a daily basis. If you're in Texas, where the governor has not imposed a statewide lockdown, and you know your brother is in the hospital in a coma on a ventilator, you feel that acutely. So I think that the public opinion on this and the appetite for continued risk in the coming weeks will be really interesting to watch, whether because this is a disease that hits people on a very personal level, there is less of an appetite for that broader risk that you describe Americans being more comfortable with generally. And so I just don't know the answer to that. And I think we'll see that in the coming weeks and months.
2: I think one hopeful thing is that we've already seen the sort of culture war aspect of disease preparedness wane a bit. So you had Fox News initially sort of downplaying the risks. They're not doing that anymore. You have people who are in, you know, Louisiana. There's a beautiful piece. I'm trying to remember where it first appeared, but a beautiful piece about a conservative family in Kenner, Louisiana, which is a wealthy New Orleans suburb, in which the husband was put on a ventilator because of the COVID virus. And that sort of persuaded the wife and a lot of their circle to reconsider their innate skepticism about the virus. And so, as Charlotte points out, as the virus touches more people, as the number of people who know someone who's come down with it increases, it's just going to be a lot harder to dismiss it and make your response conditioned on your politics in the same way that your feeling about gun policy is.
1: Thank you both. Corey Booker has been talking to The Economist about exactly this, and we'll hear from him in a moment.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: New Jersey is one of the state's hardest hit by the coronavirus epidemic. It's experiencing a steep rise in cases, which are doubling every three days. Cory Booker is a New Jersey senator who is also a 2020 presidential candidate. He's been talking to Anne McElvoy on this week's Economist Asks podcast.
4: Four girls dying in a bombing in Birmingham led to the outrage of white citizens, black citizens, and we changed laws. When women in a factory fire in New York were in sweatshop conditions, couldn't escape, and hurled themselves out windows to die on the pavement, it led to a national call to change workers' conditions. We're not as divided as we think, and, and often our press and our politicians paint this left-right picture that just doesn't reflect itself in the true data. If you poll the Obamacare, it's wildly unpopular on the right. But if you actually poll the pillars of the Affordable Care Act, overwhelmingly the majority of Republicans believe you shouldn't be denied insurance because you have a pre-existing condition and the like. Even gun violence in this country, if you poll just, do you think we should have universal background checks? Heck, 84% of NRA members believe in that. I'm just not one of these folks that doesn't believe that there isn't common ground in America. And I know from the 1989 earthquake in the Bay Area when I was out at Stanford to 9-11 to Hurricane Sandy, I've always seen the capacity of this country to come together in crisis, to stop turning against each other and turn to
1: each other. John Fassman, it would be really nice to think that this epidemic would be a unifying event in America, something that brings the country together. You're a hard-bitten professional Washington cynic. Do you buy that? Not for an instant. I think 9-11
2: is, a, is an excellent thing to bring up because both Democrats and Republicans alike agree that it was a terrible thing. And I think in this case, both Democrats and Republicans alike agree that COVID is a contagious and dangerous virus. But that doesn't mean that anyone agrees about the right way to respond to it. So I would expect responses to be as polarized as they currently are. If you look at which governors have put in statewide lockdowns, you see far more Democratic governors have than Republican governors. Brian Kemp announced a statewide lockdown in Georgia because he said he had just learned in the last 24 hours that asymptomatic carriers can pass on the virus. That's extraordinary. That's been known for months. And I think had you had a more unified message coming from the White House with an emphasis on information and response, then you would have seen a much different response from these
1: Republican governors. And I expect those political divisions to endure. It's also the case that this is a presidential year, after all, and presidential elections tend not to be terribly unifying events in America. Maybe this one will be different, but they tend to be about dividing the country into two roughly equal camps.
0: It seemed to dawn on Donald Trump, at least in the past week, that this is an opportunity for him to look like a wartime president and that he wants to seem at least a bit more somber. The thing with him is that he does change his demeanor quite quickly. And so I'm not sure he can keep up the sort of wartime president unifier role for that long. He has not been proven to keep the unifying rhetoric as a constant uh, in the past. So I think that it'll be interesting to see whether he can continue to try to claim that mantle. The other thing is just about America's relationship with science. And this has been most dramatically played out in the area of climate science, where there have for over a decade been consistent attacks on very plain science from the right with targeted ways of helping to sow doubt in the veracity of the problem of climate change. This is different, as we talked about earlier. You know, if you know someone who's dying, it's pretty easy to understand the risk. Nevertheless, on the national level, you can see the power of rhetoric having a big impact over the coming weeks and months in how seriously different politicians continue to take this, how they weigh the risks of opening the economy or closing it. And you've seen certain conservatives so showing a reticence to completely lock down Hobby Lobby, which is a chain of stores that is very popular in red states, has been deemed an essential business in some parts of the country. There are certain churches, mega churches in Texas that continue to hold services, even though it's clearly dangerous to do so given the current environment. So I do think that this will play into the culture wars in a way that we're starting to see now and that we'll continue to see going forward.
1: I think the politics of this potentially becomes a lot more divisive once America or once individual states start to come down the sort of downward slope of the curve. So if you talk to healthcare experts about this, they reckon you'll need a sustained decline in new infections over a period of about two weeks and then states will be able to kind of gently open up and get rid of some of those restrictions. But that's not going to happen, as John Fassman was saying earlier, that's not going to happen in every state at the same time. And so if at the moment, the dynamic politically is of democratic cities being hit more than rural Republican areas to oversimplify, because obviously, a lot of Americans live in suburbs, which are politically somewhere in the middle, if you look further out from here, and Democrats in cities are going to be kind of anxious to get on with their lives just at the moment, potentially, when Republican rural areas are being really hard hit by this and when there's a kind of health crisis in those places. And at that point, I think people will be fed up with all the social distancing, with all the self-isolating, and it'll be a real sort of challenge to Democrats in cities to kind of maintain their discipline as the epidemic spreads to less densely populated areas.
0: I think that will be a challenge in the coming months. For the more immediate future, I think it is worth holding New York up as a paradigm to the rest of the country. Obviously, other places don't want to repeat New York's experience. But from my situation in downtown Manhattan, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be an American and what it means to serve. Because historically, rural rates have much higher rates of service in the military than big blue states like New York. And I've always thought that Service comes in a variety of different forms. People can serve at their church. They can be teachers. People in cities can work for legal aid. They can help with homelessness. And in New York right now, there's just been this extraordinary outpouring of service. As I think I mentioned last week, there are kiosks that are imploring retired medical staff to return to work and help out. Um, Governor Cuomo was doing this with his daily press briefings. But 82,000 people across the state have volunteered in New York to be in the medical reserve. That's knowing that they're going to be in situations where they don't have enough ventilators to provide to patients. That's knowing that personal protective equipment is running low. And I'm just so moved that so many people have volunteered, including, of course, the doctors who continue to go into work each day, often who have nothing to do with treating the types of patients who would be susceptible to COVID-19 but are working in ICU units, helping as needed. And the empty streets in New York are a remarkable display of solidarity. So my hope is that even though New York is in many ways the worst-case scenario that people look to the behavior of New Yorkers as an example for what can be done elsewhere.
1: Well, I agree with that, Charlotte. It's very inspiring. That was just wonderful. Now, a change of pace. It's quiz time. One reason Typhoid Mary became infamous is because she herself had a wealthy benefactor, believed to be the newspaper boss, William Randolph Hearst. Back in 1930, The Economist noted Hearst's growing interest in the movie business. There's a striking table alongside the article. It shows how Warner Brothers came from nowhere to compete with the established Hollywood studios. Charlotte, John, who was Warner's most dependable star in the 1920s? I'll give you a clue. The star was not human. Was it Mickey Mouse or am I too early? John's going with Mickey Mouse. Charlotte, what are you going with?
0: Well, the human I was going to say was Rudolph Valentino, but I don't know who... Uh, I can't think of a non-human star. Some kind of animal, perhaps?
1: Oh, Charlotte, you get half a point for that. The non-human star was Rin Tin Tin. He was a German shepherd. Huh. Hmm. Yeah. So Rin Tin Tin was a German shepherd, but which country was he from originally?
0: I can't respond to that because I'm just so thrilled I got half a point on a quiz. <laughs> I mean, this is a record. This is huge.
1: John Fasman, do you want to take a stab at Rintintin, the German Shepherd's origins?
2: Is this a who's buried in Grant's tomb question? I'm going mean, to guess the German Shepherd was German.
1: No, the German Shepherd was in fact from France. Rintintin was rescued from a World War I battlefield by an American soldier. He appeared in 27 movies, earning $1,000 a week. I'm not quite sure where the money went, but anyway, Rintintin Tin earned $1,000 a week. <laughs> well, thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Bye, John. Bye, John. See you next week. That's all from us. Please give us a review and a rating on your podcast app. You can hear the full version of that Cory Booker interview on The Economist Asks podcast. Subscribe to The Economist radio feed to find all our podcasts. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.